What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you guys haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch pack, well, you're kind of missing out because they are the most comfortable and the most well-built Fireline pack out there. So definitely check them out. They make kick-ass packs. But not only do they make kick-ass fire packs, they make kick-ass load-bearing essentials for just about everything else. So if you're a hunter, a fisher, if you're a camping and outdoors enthusiast, hell, if you even uh, need a briefcase for work or a bag to throw your civvies in and throw it under the seat of your buggy or your engine, definitely check out www.mysteryranch.com. Also, they are starting up the Backbone series. What is that, you might ask? Well, it is a campaign, an omni-channel campaign to highlight the work performed by supervisory forestry technicians and forestry technicians. A lot of seasonals as well in there. So it's going to cover full-time employees, permanent seasonals, temporary seasonals, women in fire, veterans in hire, both past and present. It's going to highlight some of the stories that we have done out there in the field. And it is awesome. I'm looking forward to working with them on this huge project. So that'll be coming down the road later. Also, they've got something else coming out. It might change in name, but so far it's called the 1039 Scholarship Program. So a portion of their uh, of the proceeds from a couple of different packs. I can't really say which ones yet because it's not fully out there, but a portion of the pa- uh, proceeds for those packs will go into a scholarship fund for you folks in the field that are looking to get back into school. So definitely check them out. If you guys want to find out more, check out www.mysteryranch.com. The Anchor Point Podcast is also brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor. Who is that, you might ask? Well, it is none other than Hotshot Brewery. What do they do, you might ask? Well, they make kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. A portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Besides kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, what else do they do? Well, they make a full line of apparel to support that Wildland Firefighter culture. They also have all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. So if you guys need a pour-over system or an AeroPress or whatever, definitely hit up www.hotshotbrewing.com. Ooh, they also make hand sanitizer. Yes, it smells like tequila, but it works. And it's not for drinking, guys. It's for cleaning. But if you guys need hand sanitizer for yourself, your car, your station, your module, Definitely hit up a hotshot brewery here. They have a ton of options available as far as hand sanitizer goes, either from gallon jugs all the way down to like little tiny ones if you guys need them. So check it out over at www.hotshotbrewing.com. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a little special shout out to our buddy, Booze. What does he do? Well, he is the founder and the czar of the ass movement. It's a funny name, but he's serious about stewardship. What do they do? Well, they raise awareness for the problem of surface shitting. And if you enjoy your public lands and don't want to see a mess or other people's messes all over the place, then definitely check out www.thefirewild.com. You can help support the cause over there by picking up some of their stickers, their anti-surface shitting stickers, or their anti-surface shitting patches. Yeah, pretty neat. That's a new, new little product that he's got going on. But it raises awareness for the problem of defecating and not burying your poop on public lands. I know it's funny, but it's gross and a rare awareness needs to be raised about this problem. So if you guys want to find out more, head over to www.thefirewild.com and check it out. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is brought to you by the Smoky Generation. 
aka the American Wildfire Experience. What is it, you guys might ask? Well, it is a digital collection, a catalog of sorts of stories about wildland firefighting here in North America, dating all the way back to the 1940s. It's pretty epic. There's a collection of over a hundred of these stories. So if you guys want a little trip down memory lane, or you guys want to see how things were handled in the past or the present, we even got a, uh, they even got some stories from current firefighters experiencing uh, what they do in the field. Definitely check it out. It's pretty interesting. You can uh, find out more over at www.wildfireexperience.org. It is a kick-ass organization. I definitely appreciate what Bethany has going on over there. And they also give back to the community. How do they do that, you might ask? Well, Bethany's teamed up with Water Axe Pumps and Mystery Ranch to help facilitate some grants for you folks in the field that are telling the story of wildland firefighting here in North America. Limited number of $500 grants is going to go out this year. I know that applications are closed for this year, but it's going to be a recurring thing. So if you happen to be a journalist, a writer, photographer, blogger, a cinematographer, anybody who's telling the story of wildland firefighting, definitely hit her up. Definitely put your name in the hat because you have an opportunity to win one of these grants. Anyways, if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. Looks like the season's heating up and uh, yeah, be safe out there. Today on the show, we are going to be continuing our little digital refresher series, but you know, kind of thinking about it, this whole thing is kind of a refresher. It's a refresher in the fact that it keeps your fire mind alive and kind of uh, gets some topics outside of the norm to be discussed. So welcome back. With that being said, today on the show, we're going to be talking about Hell Attack. We are going to be talking about all things Helitech, communications, working on ships, working with CWNs, uh, signaling, everything related to it. It's got some good tasty tidbits of uh, information for either the new Heckam, the established Heckam, the manager, or those folks on the ground that have to uh, direct ships and uh, get what they need out of a helicopter. So today on the show, I've got Mr. Scott Nutt. He is the soup, one of the soups over there at Northern Colorado Hell Attack, and we're going to be talking about all of these subjects. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Scott Nutt from Northern Colorado Hell Attack, welcome to the Anchor Point. Perfect. All right, let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got the superintendent from Northern Colorado Hell Attack, Mr. Scott Nutt. Dude, how you doing? I'm doing good, Brandon. Uh, thanks for having me on and I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you. Oh yeah, man. Anytime, anytime. Glad to have you. Thanks. So cool, man. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I, uh, I grew up in Colorado and uh, enjoyed the outdoors and enjoyed working. And when I was uh, struggling out of high school to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, the wildfire kind of fell in my uh, 
in my lap. And ever since I, uh, it's been my, my life. I started in 1994 and then, uh, in 95, I joined the forest service out in Lake Tahoe. And, uh, over the years, I spent a couple of years hot shotting and, and leadership and initial attack on a, on a squad. And then, uh, in 2013, I, uh, helped found the Northern Colorado How Attack program and, um, eventually was the assistant and, uh, the heritage superintendent out of California and, and he and I, uh, ran a pretty good program. And then, uh, in 2017, we, uh, we took over management of a, one of the heavy helicopters within the region. And, uh, I've kind of been leaning that direction ever since. And that's what I do now. I'm type one program manager. Nice. And what, uh, what kind of ship are you running out there? Is it a Sikorsky or? Well, this year is a unique year. They're, uh, in the process of awarding the exclusive use contracts and those aren't in place yet. So this year, um, we have a call when needed helicopter. And then we also have a, uh, what they're calling the 90 day surge, uh, helicopter. So right now I'm managing a Chinook and a, a sky crane. Nice. So now with everything that's going on with, uh, you know, COVID and everything like that, explain the surge. Cause that kind of came about with, this management of the, of the pandemic. Right. Right. Um, so the surge is an additional 36 aircraft, either type two restricted or type one helicopters that are, uh, strategically placed, but intended to bolster the, uh, ability of, uh, squash and fires while they're small. Um, you know, the general intention in, in the COVID mitigation realm is to, try and not have as few large fires, i.e. ICP and camp atmospheres where people would be in close proximity and large numbers coming from all over the country. So that's kind of the effort there. And uh, at least in our region, we've added, I believe, uh, four extra Type 1 helicopters and, and one. Oh, did I lose you? Uh, oh, there you are. Yep. To the normal... Uh, compliment that we have in a, in a standard year. Nice. So it's just basically adding additional helicopters, whether it be type two restricted, so people can't fly on them or type one helicopters, right. which no one can fly on anyways, except for the pilots and the crew. That's correct. Gotcha. All right. I mean, that's kind of a weird uh, thing to think of it that way. Cause I know that, that there was like a national thing that went out a national contract seeking adventure, if you will, to bolster all these forces. And uh, not a lot of people know about that. Yeah, the uh, you know several media organizations have uh, got their ear to the the pulse of the agency, and um, you know, and and you know, the government, politicians, and, and agency have have you know funded a lot of extra effort so that we can um, try and catch fires when they're small. And and so far, in in my experience, our fire seasons uh, kind of ramping up, and you know, having that extra capacity has already proven to. Uh, be pretty beneficial. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's is a necessity though. I mean, keeping fires small in light of recent events. I mean, it's it's a necessity right now. Like you're saying, of yeah. those big type one camps or even a type three camp, camp yeah. at all. Yeah, it's a necessity. Yeah, yeah and each each uh, module type, whether it's uh, smoke jumpers all the way down to uh, engines, is you know they're all having to formulate mobilization plans and and mitigation efforts and. Um, there's a lot of, uh, pretty solid planning that I've seen with, uh, you know, preparation for individual modules or the module is one concept to, uh, you know, 
take briefings over the phone, get SA that way and, and be self-sufficient with, you know, a lot of good food and, you know, uh, plenty of supply of MREs of course, but, um, yeah, being trying to be more self-sufficient than normal. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, I know that Wyoming hotshots, they had this, they actually got district support to get a, like a trailer to outfit a mobile kitchen of their own. And they have yeah. this, this spreadsheet that's linked with all the squatties so they can just go in the squatties only get the groceries and it automatically say you need onions or something like that. If you click, you say, yeah, I got onions. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows they don't have to get that again. So it's kind of cool that all of these things are coming together and it's a learning opportunity, I think for the organization to maybe fight fire different ways. Yeah. A little bit more self-sufficient. Yeah. Self-sufficiency is a, you know, it's always been a pretty important thing with, uh, you know, the type one world, whether it's, uh, repellers, hotshots, smoke jumpers, um, you know, they've always had that capability, but it, it definitely detracts, you know, it's going to take time for a, a squad leader to run to town and pick up groceries. And, um, you know, our hell attack program has a pretty sweet trailer that's already been outfitted with, you know, self-sufficiency to work out of a single aircraft helibase and support whatever incident and, you know, a lot of digital capabilities to do things remotely and, but yeah, just added capacity with extra coolers, extra, extra propane bottles so that you can cook and, and wash stations and, you know, all the, all the necessities that we take for granted that you get when you're at a camp. Oh yeah. I mean, it's even companies outside of, uh, fire, you know, the people that are supplying firefighters. Like I know hotshot brewery, they were doing uh, hand sanitizer. Now they outfitted their, one of their roasting facilities to make hand sanitizer for you guys. So, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of support. It's pretty cool. And people are really, really flexible and being really uh, agile as far as adapting to the new way of fighting fire. Yeah. One of my buddies, wives, uh, she owns a company called Green Buffalo that um, they sewed up Nomex face covers. Oh, so really? you know, those, those kind of things are, it's cool how innovation is happening. And um, while then firefighters were adaptable and we oftentimes make do with less, but um we're definitely innovative and, and being dynamic with this situation. Oh yeah. Problem solvers, man. That's our culture. Yep. For sure. Nice. So enough about like COVID and all that crap. Cause that's always a topic of concern. And it's <laughs> always in the front of everybody's minds. Let's talk about your hell attack program some more. Yeah. So hell attack, right? Now for the public that's listening to the show the general public, um, that don't know what hell attack hell attack is. What is hell attack? Uh, hell attack, uh, has, uh, many facets, but it's generally described as, uh, aerial delivered firefighters by rotor wing. You have, uh, kind of different breakdowns in that where you have a, uh, helicopter program that has the repel capability where they repel out of the helicopter into a fire. There's helicopter programs that have, uh, short haul capability, usually typically used for, uh, evacuation of injured people. Um, or you have normal standard, uh, hell attack modules where, um, you land, everybody gets off. Now they're a ground-based firefighter, uh, using an aerial asset and, and moving forth. I've always loved hell attack, man. It's uh, a lot of, a lot of flexibility. You can do a lot of stuff with a, even the type three ship. And that's probably my favorite ship to fly on is a type yeah. three, just because they're just fast, quick turnarounds. Yeah, I've always enjoyed it for the the concept of, uh, one, you have to be really good at wildland firefighting, but you also have to be really good at knowledge in aviation. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, hell attack 
uh, firefighters eventually, you know, they get the bug and they go become pilots and, and come back to the job as a pilot. But, um, it's, it's two different skill sets that blend together, but you know, it's a, it's a strong challenge that, uh, to know the rules in aviation and to do, know the rules in wildfires is both pretty, uh, depth of knowledge is required. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole thing is policy, especially with aviation policy is king. Yep. Yeah. It's unfortunate that policy is written in blood, but there's a reason for it for sure. Oh, absolutely. So the world of hell attack mission, like what do you guys do as far as like your mission? What is your specific mission over there at Northern Colorado hell attack? Well, we, uh, we support initial attack, large fire support. Um, we also have an interagency agreement with Rocky Mountain National Park where we perform search and rescue missions for them in coordination with them. And uh, in general, just uh, support uh, ground-based firefighting with uh, boots on the ground and or uh, utilization of the aircraft, uh, bucket work, recon, aerial ignition, uh, medevac. Do you guys do the uh, short haul too? We don't. Um, w- there is an intention to eventually try and stand up that, that program. But, uh, right now the forest service is not standing up any extra modules. And uh, I know it is the desire of uh, our type three superintendent to stand up that program. It, it's a, uh, it's pretty useful and, and could be used, especially in our, in our work with Rocky mountain national park. Yeah. Especially if you guys are doing uh, search and rescue missions, that could definitely be handy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what about repelling? You guys don't do any repelling. Of course you guys are running type three out there, right? We, we don't repel. Um, right now the, the standard is, uh, medium helicopters, standard category, medium helicopters are, are the repel platform. Mm-hmm. And we don't have any repel in this region. Gotcha. And now, um, what was I going to ask you here? Um, you got the step program too, right? Do you guys do that? We don't. Um, that's an ad- additional la- layer of training and, and, uh, certifications. And, uh, we do have a couple aircraft in the state that are, uh, state run programs that do do step got gotcha. mm-hmm. that's pretty cool that's a neat little program i know uh, i was talking to a couple of guys off the vegas vegas hell attack crew and they're just finishing their certs for the recertifications for the step program yeah i've seen that and look like a pretty fun training for sure oh yeah so you guys have the ability to run multiple ships right and you guys are currently doing that so you got your primary, your exclusive use helicopter, which is basically the helicopter that's given to you, provided to you by agency contract throughout the entire season. It's your ship. Correct. Yeah. And so just to, uh, for those listeners that don't understand what exclusive use versus call when needed means, uh, exclusive use is a, is a contract that uh, determines a mandatory availability period where uh, the government funds a set period of time, a start date and an end date. And a company agrees to that, and they're exclusively ours for that period of time. Um, whereas call when needed is, uh, you know, these companies agree to be on a call when needed contract, and we'll call you when we need you. And, you know, that's typically a day-by-day kind of a situation. So having the exclusive use, uh, you know, allows us to really plan out long-term uh, efforts. Gotcha. And now you guys do the, I, I always called it the chicken ship <laughs> as far as that's the a term I've never heard before. Really? No. Oh yeah. It's, I guess it's regional vernacular, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the CWN. Um, 
And uh, yeah, you guys can split up your module and you can run management with a CWN and then boost your program with other people that are trainees or other hackums as well. Correct. Yeah. We, uh, we typically have the ability to uh, staff our heavy exclusive use and our type three exclusive use. And then um, also have the ability to, to put a, a small crew out to take care of a CWN manager and crew members as well. Nice. So we may use uh, boosted uh, crew members, but yeah, we definitely have, we have uh, right now we have four uh, qualified managers in the program and, and we're waiting on uh, two new hires that are uh, kind of in process right now, but we're hoping to have uh, possibly up to uh, six, you know, come the uh, meat of the season. Yeah, man. That's going to be a hard thing too. I mean, bringing on new people or doing boosts this season, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a challenge. And, um, you know, the each forest or in addition to each forest, each region has their own protocols about mobilization and whether or not you can cross geographic area boundaries. And it all has great intentions. And, um, you know, the the risk of exposure is high, especially when you're when you're mobilizing and traveling through air quote hotspots and um you know, that's something we're definitely concerned of. And, uh, the way that our, our seasonal employees were brought on this year, uh, they, they did a home-based 14 day, uh, start of their, their, their tour this year where, you know, they, they didn't report to work. They, they worked from home for the first two weeks and basically a, essentially a, a self quarantine for that period of time. So that anybody that started from out of area had time and place to make sure they're not uh, infected. That's crazy, man. I mean, you got to do it though. You, you know, yep. you got yeah, to sure. make things work. So yep. speaking of personnel, the Heckam, the whole point of this episode, I think was to um, kind of do like a little bit of tag on to the digital refresher series that I'm doing. Right. So Absolutely. we're talking about communications. We're talking about being a better Heckam. We're talking about all that stuff. So let's break it down. Let's give some tips and tricks to Heckam's just to knock the dust off or the new Hickam, the new Hickam that's uh, trying to get their feet in the game. So as far as a Hickam goes, what can we do to operate better as a Hickam? Well, that is a very deep question and uh, it has a lot of implications. So um, to be a good Hickam requires a pretty uh, flexible skill set where you need to be able to hear many frequencies in one ear and then being able to write at the same time. So what I'm just kind of driving at is that multitasking and not being uh, confused with that and, and mitigating confusion. And, you know, oftentimes we say slow is smooth, smooth is fast, where don't get jammed up, take one thing at a time, focus on your task. And, and, uh, beyond that, you know, I've always been a huge advocate of, of, uh, self-learning. Um, those in wildfire know what the S classes are. And, and if you fail one, then you definitely don't belong in wildfire. Um, beyond that, and, and the training is good, but it's, it doesn't cover all the things that you need to know to do your job, right? Uh, the interagency aviation training website is a, a quality thing. And, um, I always advocate to our, our crew members that, just because it says you need to do these four A classes, that's that's the bare minimum. We expect you to keep going, try and knock out as many as you can, and 
you know, become knowledgeable enough to do my job. You know, that's what I expect of my crew members. And that's my job is to mentor them into doing my job. So, um, building their depth of knowledge and, in, uh, helicopter crew member work, digging deep into FAA safety training, digging deep into safety management systems training, understanding mishaps and uh, crash investigation reports and, and really digging deep into where and how they can, they can insert their slice of cheddar in the Swiss cheese model. Um, that's kind of a, a buzzword that I like to use every now and then is that my personal responsibility is to be the slice of cheddar in your Swiss cheese model. If I see something wrong, then I'm going to say it. And I advocate to my helicopter crew members, that's your job. If I'm doing something wrong, it's your job to tell me so. We are all a team. So, you know, you may see something I don't. I may see something you don't. Communication. So that goes into a whole other avenue that we'll get back to. But um, personal accountability is another one. You know, the helicopter crew member is a essentially a single resource position without a lot of the single resource training. Um, so that puts it on the, the supervisors of the helicopter crew member to ensure that they're set up for success to go out there by themselves, mobilize via agency vehicle or commercial travel, check into an incident, get assigned an aircraft, do the, do the job. And so, you know, that's a, that's a pretty large responsibility on a, what could be a second or third year firefighter. And, you know, that's, um, it's imperative that the supervisor really coaches that well. And from my experience, it, it's worked out really good. The, the folks that are driven to jump into a uh, helicopter crew member world are driven, smart individuals and usually blend in really well to that, that atmosphere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. There's a lot of responsibility with that, like you're saying. I mean, that whole idea of being a single resource without the single resource training, like you're not, you're not being a crew boss or an engine boss. It's yeah. different, you know, it's, it's, it's cool though, but it's very unique that you could get called up on it's IROC now. Uh-huh. It's not Ross. It's IROC now. Yep. And you can get dispatched to anywhere if someone needs you. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, the nature of the dispatching system is it's a national model that moves assets where they're needed. And if, if folks are available, then, and no one else is available and you're the one you're going to go. And, um, you know, we, we try to set our crew members up for success in the method of, you know, everybody has their own travel card. Everybody has their own computer profile. Whereas in, in my early seasonal days, like, um, there was no such thing as giving a seasonal a travel card. There was no such thing as getting them a computer profile. The supervisor input their time, input their travel for them. But all of our seasonals, they're, they're dialed. They're, they're administratively proficient and ready to go. And then uh, also it comes to that professional level where, you know, their role has implications in safety directly always. So, you know, the work that they put out, whether it's a manifest of a cargo load or manifesting the passengers getting in the aircraft or briefing on the aircraft, uh, that all has deep implications on people's lives. So, you know, we, we entrust them with that and, uh, and oversight too. And that's one thing too, is, uh, the administrative duties of a helicopter crew member. It's insane. You're doing manifest, you're doing cargo, you're taking accountability for people. I mean, this is all critical stuff, but it's all implemented to keep everybody safe. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, just a little primer for the general public out there, the, uh, 
aircraft that fly around have have a uh, allowable payload and uh it's the pilot's responsibility to to look at the aircraft performance and capabilities and and uh perform what's called a load calculation and the helicopter manager signs that and then uh that number goes to the helicopter crew member to make sure that we stay under that that number and um you know there's margins for uh safety in there uh built-in margins especially when uh carrying people um but yeah and you know, sure, they write a manifest, but it's got to be legible. It's got to be understood. Um, so, like on our our uh, A Star, it's an Airbus AS three fifty B three. It has a side basket that carries cargo. It has a weight limitation, and in, in addition to the aircraft weight limitation, so you know we we separate our our manifest to show basket weight and total aircraft weight too. So. Um, yeah, it's, it, it needs to be very diligent and, and, uh, planning and, um, there's, there's also fuel that gets burned off as you fly. And so, you know, being aware of, of that additional capability, once you've burned off some of that fuel, you can add more weight. So, you know, it's a dynamic situation and, and, uh, you know, we don't just set a helicopter crew member out there to do it by themselves without any training. We, we definitely have good oversight, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility in, in, uh, understanding the aircraft and, and its capabilities. You know, that's another good point too, is, uh, if you're a Heckam and you get called up to a CWN, I mean, you got to refamiliarize yourself with another ship, an entirely new platform typically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a crucial, you know, it, it usually, um, takes three or four days for, uh, a call when need a module to cohese, um, the storming, forming, and norming phases aren't aren't really allowable in wildfire. You know, you usually show up and you're you're running and gunning already. So you know that that's where I advocate to our crew members is to is to stop, take time, ensure that you do things right, get a good solid briefing, ask those questions about things you may not know. Don't go in there thinking you know everything. And you know this A star B three may be different than the other A star B three. So you know, dig deep into each aircraft. Oh yeah. I mean, like for instance, last year, uh, when I was out running around with a hell attack module they had one ship that was able to open up the tail boom and you can put stuff in the tail boom, right? Uh-huh. The other one you couldn't, or the electronics were different or the radio was different and it, everything was just different. You have to re teach yourself these different platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And aircraft are, are delicate pieces of equipment too. You know, the, typical fire engines built out of thick steel and, you know, putting a tool in a, in a bin isn't a big deal, but you know, the working with the, the, um, contractor that we use to fly our aircraft, you know, those are million dollar machines or multi-million dollar machines that, you know, we need to take really good care of. And, um, so, you know, it has to have a deft touch as well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the skins on, uh, a stars particularly, it's real thin. I mean, you just got yep. a little chunk of aluminum <laughs> and I don't even know. It's like a, like a polymer, uh, skin on it. Yeah. It's very thin. I don't know the thickness exactly, but yeah, it's, you know, doors and handles and, uh, where to, where to grip to pull yourself in and where to step, where not to step. And yeah, it's, that's all critical information. Oh, absolutely. That, and I think being really di- uh, diligent about, looking at stuff, touching, feeling, looking at everything and not gaining an opportunity or having an opportunity to get that operational blindness. That's a big thing. Yeah. You do the same, yeah, we do a same lot thing over of, and over uh, again. 
Yeah, we do a lot of mock-ups, you know, with no rotors turning. It's it's nice and quiet. Um, you know, practicing bucket drills, practicing loading and unloading passengers, practicing offloading uh, equipment and getting those that kind of that rote knowledge where, you know, it's it's second nature so that you're able to focus on other things when when you're actually going to a fire. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of chaos around a ship, especially when rotors are turning. And if someone's un, like unfamiliar with that environment, you can see it in their eyes. They're just like wide eyed and it's like, oh my God, what is that? And you have to grab them, you know, direct them. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, uh, <laughs> I've heard people say that there's two things that can drive two noises that can drive people crazy. That's a turbine engine and a baby crying. And I'll testify to both of those. I've witnessed it. (laughs) (laughs) Got experience Um, with both of that. In 2013, we had a huge flood here in the Northern front range of Colorado and, um, the national guard got called up and, you know, we were intermixed with them, but, um, it was pretty amazing to, to see all the evacuation of, it's the second largest uh, personnel evacuation at the time to Katrina, aerial evacuation. And it was thousands and thousands of people getting pulled out of the mountains. And almost every single load of uh, civilians that came off the hill, you know, at least one or two people were walking straight towards the tail rotor. (laughs) It was was shocking to see how people that aren't attuned to aircraft were behaving. It it definitely makes people kind of think crazily. Yeah, I think it's just too much white noise, I guess, in the background. If you're not familiar in that environment and you're just thrown into it, I could definitely see where that white noise would cause a lot of confusion for somebody yeah. who's not familiar with it. For sure. Well, we, you know, when we're, when we're mobbing out and, and setting down for a, a bucket drill, you know, live training or, or even a wildfire response, you know, we typically leave our helmets on and use a, a push to talk button to our radios so that we're, we're still in good communication with the pilot and, and that flight almost provides a little bit of sound barrier and, and you know, keeps you kind of calm too. Well, you guys have the push to talk buttons on your radios. I mean, that's kind of cool because a lot of ships don't have that. If you're outside of the aircraft, you know, you don't have that communication yeah. with the pilot. Yeah. It's a pretty critical piece of equipment and, you know, being able to just calmly talk to your pilot without having to walk up and yell helmet to helmet. And yeah, it's, it's pretty critical. No, that's awesome. So what are some tips and tricks to maintain efficiency? Cause uh, working around ships, it's all about efficiency. I think. Yeah, excuse me. Um, efficiency is, uh, in my opinion, drawn through uh, practice and, and repetition. Um, the first few times you do a task, it's going to be, um, learning and, and, working out your own personal efficiencies and how to take one step versus the other step. And, um, but I like to tell my folks to be intentional. Don't be, don't be focused on things that aren't important at that point in time, but be very intentional about each motion. Um, which also leads to fatigue management as well. You know, if you're, you forgot something in the aircraft, you have to walk back. That's an extra 40 steps that you didn't have to make. Plus it delays an operation. And so just be, you take that extra half a second or two seconds or five seconds to make sure everything's tight. And then you, you go about your next task. So I guess the way I describe efficiency is being intentional and then repetition is uh, to me, one of the most important things. And, and, you know, the, the other leaders in our type three program, you know, the superintendent and the captains and the squad leaders, they're, 
they're some of the best I've ever worked with. And so they, they spend every hour of every day when they're at the base, if they're not responding to a fire, they're, they're drilling and, and training and, um, going through every scenario. And, you know, we do a lot of, uh, patient packaging to bucket drills to IE size ups from a, from the cockpit when the aircraft's not even turned on, we're just mocked up in the back seat, front seat, manager training, helicopter crew member training, mock up a landing and, and go, go do it. And I saw that on your uh, Instagram the other day. Um, I think it posted it yesterday or one of your uh, crew members did, but it was the aerial size up. And that's the yeah. thing that I've always struggled with is sizing up actual, like getting a, a good wag on the size of a fire from the air because everything is different. Yeah. Yeah. Distance estimations to size estimations are, are generally always a lot smaller than you think they are or mm-hmm. a lot bigger than you think they are. And, uh, yeah, but the, you know, the advent of the iPad or, or, uh, you know, easy filming of, of things that we do have definitely provided, uh, those simulations, a lot more realistic value. And, um, sometimes we'll, we'll use Google earth to do, uh, scenarios or simulations and, you know, that visualization key is, it's pretty good. You know, if, if you've seen a, a bunch of 10th acre fires from, uh, from the air, it's easier to see a 10th of an acre fire from the air, you know, and, and just scale that up. But yeah, back to the repetition thing is just, it, it builds that, that slide tray of knowledge. Oh, absolutely. And undoubtedly, you know, a football field, I mean, we always kind of gauge, you know, your sizes by football fields. A football yep. field looks a hell of a lot different from the air than it does on the ground. Yeah. And then you add slope to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's another thing too. That's cool about it. Uh, it's like with all the technology that we have available to us nowadays, uh, we have collector, we have a Venza, we have all this stuff and we can actually kind of even draw it out on the map and it'll give you a rough area. So, I mean, use the tools at your disposal when you're sitting there orbiting, trying to figure out your plan. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, the state of Colorado has, uh, post 2012, which is a pretty bad fire season around here. They, uh, they caught, bought a couple fixed wing. They're called Pilatus 12s. Nice aircraft. Um, with a really nice camera system that, you know, it orbits at 30,000 feet and can get, get really good imagery. And, you know, a lot of times they're, they're overhead of us and helping us and, you know, we're communicating back and forth. They're able to uh, physically draw, draw a perimeter. And it's, it's similar to the California Cobra program. And, you know, it just provides real-time intelligence that, uh, you know, makes our job a little bit easier and, and sharing that knowledge with uh, fire managers. And that's something that we we do pretty diligently too is, you know, we're, shoot, we're not just shooting video because it's cool. We're shooting video so that we can uh, send it in an email to a fire manager so that they can get a picture of what they have on their plate, what kind of uh, long-term planning they need to think about, team ordering, everything like that. So, yeah, we, we view it as uh, intelligence gathering is pretty important in our job too. And, and in addition to communicating that stuff over the radio. Oh yeah. And that's another thing too, is like Helitech is very versatile in the fact that you can do so much with a Helitech module. You can do yeah. recon, you can do IA, you can do bucket support, you can do uh, logistical support. The list goes on and on and on. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we, we definitely take those roles uh, very seriously. And then, uh, you know, when we get uh, sent to a large fire hella base and, you know, the whole crew's there and um, we don't rest on our laurels. We like to send a, a squad of five out to the hill and uh, engage on a division and help out where we can and, you know, not just be static at, at a hella base. You know, we want to 
we want to spread ourselves out and, and still staff the machine appropriately, but also uh, make sure that, you know, everybody's engaged in the fire. Everybody's doing work. Yep. And that's another thing too, is uh, with everything going on, you guys, with the, with the uh, variability of the missions that you guys are doing, I know that it's important to get everybody on the same page operationally. So when you're building a new crew, especially on a CWN, what is your tips and tricks for getting everybody on the same page? Um, well, initially, uh, just setting that climate of open communication for me is one of the biggest keys is, uh, you know, it, it requires an open climate of communication where concerns and, and, uh, ideas are freely shared and, um, there's no reprisal for, for having an idea or a concern. And I think that's the first start, you know. Then it gets into, you know, familiarity with each other, familiarity with the machine, aircraft, uh, location of stuff on the trucks. Um, you know, oftentimes call needed aircraft are, are hamstrung with, you know, a rental vehicle or something like that and tools that aren't necessarily from their own personal cash. They're from the regional cash. And so there's a little bit of hamstring there, but, um, yeah, and then and then on top of that is getting a good solid inbrief from whatever uh, fire management unit you're working for. That's uh, you can glean a lot of information on on their expectations on normal fire behavior, current situation expectations from them. Um, yeah, and then be being ready to to exceed their expectations however you can, and you know having that that intention and the drive to to do the best that you can and and support their needs. I understand. You uh, mentioned a lot about communications. Now, communication is, is, is huge. It's probably one of the yeah. most important things, but we communicate differently in Hell Attack. We have to keep things short. We keep things brief, keep things concise. What do you got for us for tips and tricks on that? Um, I've always been kind of a, uh, kind of a rapid fire communicator. Um, I may be long winded, but I, I, I cover a lot of topics. But uh, um, in in Hell Attack and, and aviation in general, there's so much communication, whether it's on the, the Victor radio, which is the VHF AM radio, or the FM radio, VHF FM, verbal, nonverbal, um, and electronic communications are all are all part of that. But um, you know, there's the the simple rules for communication. That's um, ensure the message is passed and understood and ask questions if you don't understand and ensure the, the receiver gets what the sender sent in whatever form that is. So, um, uh, fast forward to, you know, like, um, in 2017, I, I was uh, lucky to be accepted into the aerial supervision Academy, uh, NASTA and, they use the word brevity and you don't add fluff when you don't need to, i.e. at this time. That is a, that is an <laughs> I'm so term. guilty of that. And they use, uh, in the simulations there, they use a, a metal washer and a metal dustpan. Then you're doing a sandbox scenario where you're physically walking around a piece of ground as if you're flying around it. And you give a size up or you give something and, and inadvertently somebody or myself say, uh, 
the fire is 20 acres at this time. And bing. So they do a Pavlov's dog thing where they drop the washer in the dustpan. So it, it, it cues you. You're like, oh, I just did it. And But that reinforces the, the concept of brevity. And, and then also they use scripts. Um, and that's, that's key in, in hell attack, particularly when you're, you're given a size up, you know, we have a size up, uh, form or sheet card that is pretty well laid out. You circle the fire a few times and you get your situational awareness and then you follow that script when you report it out and that keeps everything clean and clear. You're not allowed to use fluff words and then you, you, you're sending that message and, and ensure that it's received. I got you. And now the, I mean, we even use scripts for when we're taking off, at least the managers do, um, you know, two hours of fuel, two hours of fuel, full shows on bull on board. And then ETE is two hours or something like that. You know, we, yep, use, yep. we use that all the time and it helps. Yeah, for sure. And you know, my hell attack training and experiences kind of helped me in that arena when I went to, uh, the aerial supervision Academy where, you know, the, some of the folks that are, uh, prepared to be air attacks, i.e. division supervisors that are now wanting to get into the aviation world. Um, you know, they're probably the best in operational capabilities, but haven't learned that, that script knowledge and, and how to keep things in, in brevity. But, um, yeah, it just takes some practice. And, and that's the, the cool thing about the Academy is I walked away with that with a lot better training tools for my helicopter crew members. And, you know, we'd use a, uh, and manager trainees, we'd use a lot of the, the script processes and evaluation forms to uh, basically AER our missions or ensure that uh, our training program is is built with that kind of concept in mind. Gotcha. And now, so when you're on the ground, it's kind of a little bit different. I mean, it's a little different. I mean, you still have to be concise. You have to use brevity. Um, but we got some tri- tips and tricks for communicating with a ship. Say if you're even a hotshot crew and you're just picking up a, uh, a heavy to go knock something down. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. And um, every year that seems to be a common thread where uh, a target description or, you know, calling in a, a cargo load is, is oftentimes kind of confusing to a pilot. And, you know, it, that reduces efficiency and, and sometimes can affect safety. But, um, what I think it's Kathy Barda that did a, uh, star refresher video several years ago where it was geared towards the helicopter crew member and, and also geared towards people calling in bucket drops. And, you know, so target description starts at the long range model medium and then, and close in, um, pilots are making turns and they don't have time to look at the compass. So, cardinal directions at the long distance may be okay. Like I, I see you, you're 12 miles out to my South. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes down to more specific target description, um, using upslope, downslope, true, uh, fire, um, terminology like head, heel, flank, right flank, right shoulder, you know, a lot of those terms are, are a lot easier to, relay to a pilot or a lot easier for them to understand. Um, in general, the, the terminology of a, the anatomy of a fire is, is probably the best way to, to guide them in medium. And then once they're like, they pick you up and then you're able to more specifically describe your target area. So you, you generally drive them into your location on division Delta. Okay. Now, I'm at your 12 o'clock low mid slope on the right shoulder. 
okay, very specific and very brief. You're basically driving their eyes to where they need to look for you. Once they pick you out, then you'll be like, you got me. Okay. I got you. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I, my intention is for you to start where I'm at working down slope towards the, the Creek picking up uh, significant heat or any sort of spot fires that you may see, you know, just, I think oftentimes people get a little confused and, and uh, jammed up by the, the grandness of a, a helicopter coming in and doing work for them, but the pilot is there to support them. And most of the pilots that I've ever worked for feel that that's what their job is, is to go out and support boots on the ground. And so I, I tell people when, when this conversation comes up is like, don't get jammed up. They're there to help you and just try to drive their eyes and then tell them your mission in a, in a basic and simple terminology. They'll figure out how to fly it. You know, you don't need to tell them which way to approach and depart. And, but, uh, you do need to mention hazards as well. So power lines, uh, taller trees in the area, others, other hazards that you've identified and, and just, you know, make sure that they see what you're seeing. Gotcha. Especially like if there was a drone, I've know I've, I've been on a couple of fires where a drone would show up and be in our aviation her aviation zone and uh yeah. it shuts everything down man yeah that's a critical thing that's uh it's growing you know the number of uh intrusions have grown every year and uh last year we had a fire where both our light and our heavy were responding and, and fortunately uh one of the um one of the leaders in the group from the forest was in good communication and, and witnessed a drone and was able to hold us out and um, you know, but it did, it reduces efficiency and causes hazards for, uh, folks in the aircraft. And, you know, uh, I'm thankful we haven't had any mid airs with a, a mandarial system, but, um, yeah, whatever the public can do to, to, uh, recognize that hazard and, and just steer clear and not, not put up drones. And, uh, the agencies are, are growing in that and, uh, but it's a crawl, walk, run kind of concept. We're not just jumping in big time with drones we're we're slowly standing up those programs and making sure that they integrate well with the manned aircraft yeah i mean we have our own drone programs but as far as like a psa for the general public guys don't fly drones on an incident i know it's cool to go see what's going on over there but in reality you shut down the entire fires aerial program Absolutely. any area yeah, firefighting program that you got going on there it is shut down immediately yeah, it has huge implications, not only people's life, but, uh, the, what ifs, if the fire continues to grow and, um, loss of homes, loss of other lives in the civilian world. And yeah, it's, it's not something to be messed with. And please folks out there, just, just steer clear. Don't launch a drone anywhere near a wildfire. Oh yeah, absolutely. So getting back to the communications thing, I know, um, when I was coming up on this, the signal mirror, that was like the hot rage, right? Yeah. What's the proper way to signal a helicopter? Um, Cause I hate flashing the shit out of a pilot. I mean, you can't do that. You're going to Yeah. It, it, you know, it takes practice to learn how to signal mirror somebody, but you know, the, the feedback that I've gotten and, and a lot of crews are starting to do this is they're carrying uh, led strobes with high output lumen. And uh, that's what our crew is using. And you know, that's, you can see that from miles and miles away when you, when you tell a pilot that's inbound to your location and he doesn't know where you're at, you flash a strobe, say, tell the pilot I'm on the right shoulder, uh, top of the ridge. I'm going to send you a strobe right now and let me know when you got it. And then 
instantaneously they're like, yep, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the strobe is, is the newest and greatest methodology for it. But, uh, you know, the, the mirror flash is good. And then, uh, the old, old fashioned tool handle with a bunch of flagging, flagging on it. Um, you know, I found pretty valuable back in the day before we had all the led flashers and, you know, if you point with your tool and, you know, I want you to start over there and go down there and it worked pretty good. But yeah, the strobe is the new, the new way to go. I definitely, uh, I used to carry one as uh it was my own personal one. It wasn't a strobe, but it was a, uh, like a pen light. So it's uh-huh. one of those high output lumen output, uh, pen lights. I think it was a stream light is what it is, but, uh, uh-huh. you can see that thing from space. It's, it's damn bright. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that grabs their eye, you know, and, um, good thing about pallets is that none of them that I know of are colorblind. So, you know, the different color flaggings too. So, you know, fuchsia or lime green are, are, are good colors to indicate things with. And, you know, all of our folks carry panel too. Yeah. Panel's awesome. I use a ton of paneling actually. (laughs) I think, yeah, that stuff kicks ass. Yep. But yeah, so directing the ships, we kind of covered that. We covered uh, a little bit about directing ships and using clock positions, all that stuff like that. Do you have any more tips and tricks for, you know, working around ships and getting them to do what you want to do? Um, I guess it goes back to that communication effort where um, describing your objective and your intentions, um, you know, kind of give them that leader's intent concept where, hey, what we're trying to do over here is we're trying to take our hand line from this point to that point. And what I would like you to do is to support us in that, work out ahead of us. Whatever your objective is, is just clear, you know, clearly communicate that to the pilot. Um, and then beyond that, let them fly the aircraft. Oftentimes I've heard folks try to, um, micromanage the way that a pilot flies the aircraft. I know they're not intentionally trying to fly the aircraft for them, but they're, they're essentially micromanaging and, um, they may not be aware of the winds at that level that the aircraft is flying at. And so, um, being flexible to approach and departure paths, um, Sometimes a piece of terrain is difficult for a pilot to get into from one direction, but they can come at it from a different one. So being flexible with that and understanding some of their limitations is pretty key also. Um, when it comes to uh, like calling people into a hell of spot, you know, the, the appropriate um, amount of communication is what I term minimal. Give them what they need, give them their wins, um, give them their hazards, and then and then essentially stay sterile cockpit. And that's a, that's a concept that exists in aviation and during critical parts of a flight, whether it's takeoff landing or, or maneuvering in, in a difficult terrain, mountainous terrain, difficult winds, fire environment. Um, don't interrupt and don't, don't distract your pilot with unneeded communication. If you see something that's, that's hazardous, then definitely communicate that. But uh, we try to really hold tight to that sterile cockpit uh, process. Oh yeah. Especially when you're taking off and landing, like you're saying. Yep. So now as far as safety, now we have um, more stuff that we do, especially during like logistical or bucket ops, right? So if we're doing sling loads, that's a critical, one of those critical times, especially with communications, yeah. right? Let the, let the pilot fly, fly the ship. He's the mm. one who's familiar with it. Yeah, there was a, a crash several years ago where um, 
medium helicopter was delivering a blivet to a, a piece of ground and um this one pilot had a hard time and and couldn't get in there because the length of the long line and so the division supervisor um secured the panel which is their intended spot where they wanted the blivet to be put he moved it closer to a tree so that it didn't blow away over the night fourth fast forward next day the crew that went in there and a different helicopter went in and and they didn't move that panel and um you know the the aircraft struck a tree and crashed and so you know understanding the 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 difficulty of flying a machine with a external load on is, is critical. That's when they're pulling into a hover and bringing uh, cargo up or down through a canopy of trees is one of the more critical phases of flight. And, um, but if you see the aircraft drifting towards trees, if you see, uh, something coming out of the net, if you see any sort of thing that, uh, piques your interest as a hazard, then that, that needs to be communicated. And, um, oftentimes just abort that mission and, and have a, a good solid AER with no rotors turning and nobody injured is the, is the better, better end there. But in general, cargo is, uh, I like to advocate for a few inputs here and there, 20 feet, 10 feet load is on the ground. Um, some, some crews out there will, you know, over communicate that, but, um, you know, that's built through CRM with their pilot. And for those out there that don't know what CRM is, it's called a uh, crew resource management. And it's, um, everybody on the air crew has a role and responsibility and it's our, it's that individual's responsibility to understand that and act within that role. And, you know, an obvious uh, example of that is Sully Sullenberger, each crew member on that aircraft knew their roles and responsibilities and preparing for an accident. And they performed it valiantly. So, Saved a ton so of lives doing so too. Absolutely, and uh, you take it into our world, and um, having that CRM may maybe sometimes allows for uh, different communication styles and you know additional stuff or fluff here and there. But um, yeah, having the basics down first, and then building that CRM and allowing for some some other stuff later. Oh, absolutely. So now buckets, right? One thing that I, I always see this and I hate it, but people think it's cool to get hit by a bucket drop. Oh man. Yeah. Not cool at all. Elaborate. Take it away. Um, yeah. The, uh, let's just do the math on a, a type three bucket. Let's say hundred gallons for easy math. That's 800 pounds falling from the sky, which will reach terminal velocity. Now, granted the air will break that water column up a little bit. But that's almost a half a ton of water traveling really fast. That'll break trees. That'll break. Uh, it'll it'll fall trees, and uh, oftentimes we think we're we're pretty tough, but humans are really pretty delicate individuals. Oh yeah, we're fragile beings. So, um, I'm a huge advocate of of treating it like, as if you're following a tree, where you're at least two tree lengths away from where that bucket drop is expected to be. Now, um, when calling one in, you may need to be 10 feet from where the intended bucket drop is supposed to be, but communicate to the pilot, like, this is where I want you to put it. I'm going to bump out. Give me a second and say, you know, and then that ties into, um, you know, if you've got a, 
a type one helicopter bringing in uh, 1500 or 2000 gallons of water on each drop and you set them free, they need to know that the area is clear every time, every time. You know, there may be an occasion where you set them out in a drainage where they're, they're just seeking targets of opportunity and there's nobody in there and you create an agreement with them as if, if we're going to put people in there, I'll let you know, but until then you're, you're free to drop. But, you know, in essence, every drop from every helicopter needs to be cleared. The line needs to be cleared every time. Oh, absolutely. And that's the other thing too, is like you mentioned the 800 pounds of water out of a type three, out of a small bucket, a small Bambi bucket. Now you amplify that by, you know, 1500 uh, gallons of water. Yeah. Whew, that's a shit ton of weight, man. Yeah. Yeah. Upwards of three tons. And, you know, it's also traveling very fast. And um, there's a video out there that I think it's Ericsson that put it together where they, um, they're playing it. It looks like about 40 knots forward airspeed at about a hundred feet off the ground and they drop and not the entire drop doesn't hit the car. It's a demonstration to show the power of it. Oh yeah. And it's, it smashes the car to the ground, like roof down into the floor. Oh yeah. It pancakes the whole top of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I think it was the forest service and Ericsson and uh, I think Cal fire was in conjunction with it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great PSA video too. Yeah. Uh, I think one of, uh, was it my buddy Sevy. He helped work on that. And I think it was down at uh, a film that like Hemet Ryan airport down oh. in Southern California. Yeah. Cool. Excellent video. And if anybody wants to watch it, I highly suggest it because getting hit by retardant or getting hit by water from a bucket, it could potentially kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's there's been a lot of folks injured and i can tell you firsthand that um when i have a crane pilot come back after a mission and and uh somebody hadn't cleared the line and they'd already punched the button and water's coming out uh that that is the highest stress that they have they they um they come back frazzled and and destroyed by the potential of having hurt somebody let alone knowing that they did and you know that's their worst nightmare and so our job on the ground is to clear out, you know, it's not cool. It's, is very dangerous. And then, you know, let's talk about other stuff like rocks getting dislodged or trees breaking and rolling. And so there's, there's a lot of safety that needs to go into it. You know, usually clear laterally, don't go downhill, clear laterally side hill. And then, uh, yeah, just, just steer clear. And, you know, it's like the dirty Nomex concept. Mm-hmm a young firefighter may think it's cool to be all dirty and black and, and showing their, their experience, if you will. But, um, you know, I'm a, like, I guess almost 20, 27 years in my career now. And, you know, I wash my Nomex once a week, if not after every fire. So yeah, it's important. Unpopular opinion. Wash your yellows. <laughs> Not a lot of people yeah. do. But <laughs> plus, I mean, yeah, that's, that's going to be a whole other episode, man. I can go on and on about washing yellows, <laughs> but there's so much dirty shit and I, I'm guilty of it. When I first started out, I was like, yeah, I'll never wash my yellow. It's bad look or some shit like that. But God, all right. carcinogens and oil and just smelly shit that's in there. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Wash your yellows. Yeah. There's a, the um, I think it's CDC is partnered up with uh, the National Fire Administration to create a, a pretty good database of cancer. Uh, and, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that, that, you know, leaving your Nomex black can give you cancer. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. That and wearing sunscreen, which I'm <laughs> also guilty of not doing. Yeah. But now I do. 
So, <laughs> so as far as um, when you're filling in on it, uh, well, as if you're a Hackam, as far as like managing yourself in the air, right? How do you avoid air sickness and what's your protocol for air sickness? Because this is always a topic of concern for people that are on helicopters. It happens. Yeah, it, it does happen. And, uh, you know, let's start with the obvious thing first is to be fit for duty. Um, that's a that's a crucial part. But um, I personally have never been air sick. You know, I've I've had the initiation of air sickness when we were doing uh, I was doing some infrared handheld infrared mission where I'm looking through a small viewfinder and making a lot of turns. And so, um, uh, an FAA, uh, training I took many years ago, the, it was about spatial orientation and one of the keys there. And we're usually flying in what's called VFR visual flight rules where, um, an individual should be able to uh, see all around them three miles visibility, I think it's a thousand feet vertical and down, but, um, find the horizon. If you're in a lot of turns, if you're, you know, turbulent air, try to find that horizon and focus on that because that, that will reset your vestibular system. And, um, but in, inevitably it does happen. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had, a a couple passengers on our aircraft and, and they were doing a grid search up in Rocky mountain national park where, you know, there's a lot of turns. It's one, so it's high elevation too. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the individual did get sick and we carry six sacks in the aircraft. And if the, those get used up then the inside of your shirt, you know, it's unfortunate, but we don't want to, we don't want to gross out the airplane. And, um, I've also had passengers that, you know, are holding their mouth shut and they point to the ground and, you know, if it's the, the right location, you have a landing zone, then, we, we sat down and he got out and went out and puked and, and got back in. Managing it, man. That's uh yeah, that's, I know. So I've never experienced the air sickness thing either, but, uh, I know a couple of folks that have, and it's either in your flight bag, which is last resort or down your yellow. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, I would think that, uh, folks that are going to come and, and fly with us should know that about themselves already. Maybe. You know, maybe they've never flown in a helicopter before, and that that's totally cool. But um, if it's a known thing within you, there's methods to to prevent it. You can get little, you can take Dramamine, or you can you can put little things behind your ears. I've never done any of that, but um, yeah, it, it's it's not fun, you know. And and sometimes in a helicopter, you can get uh, spatially disoriented, and um, sometimes looking at the the panel, the the cockpit panel, and focusing on the uh, attitude indicator will sometimes correct your brain's perception of where you are in space. Uh, for example, I was on a fire in California and I was up in a big bar area and you know, that area is notorious for getting socked in with smoke. Our mission was to go out and see if uh, we could get air attack up and start launching air tankers. And inevitably we got to a point where we had to turn around because it was too smoky. So we turned around and I lost, I lost orientation. I had no idea where the horizon was and being able to put my head back, look at the panel and understand that, okay, we are in a turn still. And, and my mind thought we were flat, but we were actually still in turn. And so understanding just little things like that to help you find the horizon. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was good tips, man. Uh, especially if you're uh, going on a recon, I notice, uh, or if you're doing a mapping mission or recons, 
it's typically people mm-hmm. that are, you know, not used to flying on ships. So for sure. Yeah. And especially yeah, a lot the of mapping. low level turns and speed and yeah, that's, that's going to challenge people for uh, sure. Oh yeah. Especially the mapping missions. Cause it's all low level. You're running collector out the door and yeah, it's you usually have a, <laughs> the IC or a division or somebody with you. Yeah. And aerial ignition too is another prime candidate for air sickness and you know, the, the PLDO or plastic sphere dispenser operator is a, you know, a trained helicopter crew member that has that added skill set. But oftentimes you have a firing boss that's up front that may not have any aviation experience, but you know, you try to put somebody in there that does, but mm-hmm. that's another occasion where it's a lot of uh, grid type turns, really tight pedal turns where you're, where you're making kind of a, a hammerhead move back into the 180 degrees. Oh yeah. Tight turns, low level. It's fun. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so as far as like getting on a crew, um, you guys have already done your hiring, of course, but as far as for future, future advice to people that are looking into Helitech, what would you have for them? Um, we typically try to seek folks that have, um, have at least a couple years of ground-based firefighting experience. Um, it's difficult to teach both aviation and ground-based firefighting tactics to an individual at the same time. So that's generally what we seek out, but it's not always hundred percent the case. So, um, don't be discouraged by that. Um, the, the new style, which is, is, uh, I, I call it new because in my early career it was, uh, hiring was done via like County workforce centers or, um, and then USA jobs, one-offs, you know, where one job is announced and you apply to that one job. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're dealing with a fire hire, uh, regional fire hire events. And, um, those can be kind of confusing. There's basically hundreds, if not thousands of jobs announced at one time on one job announcement and you pick and choose your duty location and the type of modules that you're wanting to work on at whatever grade you're wanting to work for. Now, those are usually announced in uh, late July, August, and at least this recent round was announced in August and then closed in October. And um, But reach out to those crews. You know, most of the crews out there have um, an official page on the forest webpage or a BLM webpage and contact information and our uh, social media. A lot of, a lot of crews out there, including ours have a social media account where you can reach out and uh, I guarantee any one of us will get back in touch with you and um, help you with uh, resume design and, and uh, a base visit, you know, meet and greet is always helpful. It's not, not required, but it, it, it's definitely good. And, you know, just so you get a feel for what the facilities are like and some of the personnel and personality types. And, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we're pretty fortunate here on, in the front range. Um, our duty location is spectacular. It's got access to a metro area and the forest is spectacular. So our applicant pool is really deep. Um, but you know, the old mantra of the forest service is be willing to move and, and, uh, spend some time in some tough locations to earn that street credit and then, uh, and then move up later. So, mm-hmm. um, be willing to maybe sacrifice a couple years of, of your, um, of your fun time for what is going to be a fun time on a helicopter crew out in some remote duty location. And, uh, you know, some of those crews are some of the coolest crews out there where they're way off grid and, 
they do cool stuff and you know, get to fly and land on places where people have never even walked. Oh yeah. That's a great thing about it too, is like you could just fly over and you could see everything, you know, it's, it's a very unique yeah. perspective and I, I, I love hell attack, man. I'm, I miss it. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the greatest things in the world is, uh, you know, oftentimes I, I've caught myself saying, man, I get paid to do this. This is just the coolest thing in the world. And, um, you know, we have a grand mission, but we also like to enjoy our job and have fun and, and, uh, pay respect to the, you know, the, the taxpayer that funds, funds that stuff that, you know, we're out there having fun, but we're also out there to do a, a really professional job. Oh yeah. Well, there's no shame in enjoying your job. Absolutely. Yeah. As far as training though, um, what can you do as far as seeking training to up your chances about getting on a hell attack crew? Sure. So, uh, uh, basic, uh, training to become a helicopter crew member is, uh, what's called S two seventy basic air ops. And then, uh, Beyond that is uh, S-271, also known as helicopter crew member. And those are each, well, the 270 is about a three or four day class, depending upon uh, who's teaching it, whatever kind of additional stuff they want to add. But the helicopter crew member class is a, a week long class, you know, eight hours a day. And then usually the last day of the class is a, uh, a field day where you get hands on with the equipment and uh, learning how to manifest and marshal and uh, hook up the bucket and all the, all the fun stuff. So yeah, that's, that's the way to get, uh, the training. And, um, I know our crew, we, we host a 271, uh, every other year and, uh, we don't restrict it to, um, our own crew. We, we do offer it to, you know, we do have prioritization between the folks on the forest and then cooperators and, and that, that, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, the tuition is usually pretty cheap. And I know a lot of the wildfire academies around the country have, uh, S 271 and S270 classes. So, uh, if you're out there kind of on your own and you can get into those classes and you know, that definitely shines on a, on a resume. Um, in the past it's, you know, we've hired some people that had never had it, you know, some of the value that they brought to the crew with, uh, wildland fire operation skills, uh, e incident commander or EMT or, uh, some single resource calls sometimes override that necessity to be a helicopter crew member. We can, we can teach that to you. Sometimes we need some of that more operational skill set. Sometimes it's better to have a blank slate too. If you got the other yeah. quals, you know, you can train them up how you want to train them. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, each crew it, it has a different way to skin the cat. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's many right ways to do a lot of the things that we do. And um you know, we have a particular way of doing things and our procedures are sometimes even more valuable. You broke up on that last one. I'm sorry. <laughs> you went to the dead spot there. Yeah, no, you know, having that blank slate, like you said, is sometimes uh, just as valuable as already being trained up. Oh, absolutely. As, uh, the EMT qual, does that help out a lot too? It does. Um, you know, the, the nature of EMT and in, in the specifically in the forest service has, um, growingly become more recognized. You know, there's always been a, a subgroup of folks with that skill set that really wasn't recognized by the agency and the agency has done a lot of good work to, uh, foster the, um, recognition of that. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to maintain that qualification, one, to get it, and then two, to maintain it. But oh, yeah. uh, in general, you know, we're, 
helicopters are, you know, we're at, wildland fire exists out in the woods in really remote locations. And a lot of times the best way to get somebody off the hill, whether it's a twisted ankle or a really bad injury is, is via helicopter. And, you know, our, our crew prides itself on its ability to reconfigure the aircraft and send a quality EMTs. And we have several EMTs on our crew that are ski patrollers in the winter and, and leadership within the ski patrol community. And, you know, that brings an incredible skill set to the crew and, um, you know, that we're protecting our own and that's really what we need to do is be, be prepared for that worst nightmare and somebody to definitive medical care within that golden hour. Oh yeah. It's a critical thing, man. And I'm glad to see that the forest service is starting to offer, uh, medical direction as far as certain, uh, districts go or forests. Absolutely. So things yeah, are changing. That's huge. Oh yeah. You yeah. need medical direction or else you're, you're having to basically pipe in EMTs from local departments. Yeah. I actually had my EMT for a long time and, uh, I let it go because it wasn't really well supported, but, uh, now it seems that, uh, the agency recognizes the, the need for that and, um, they're supporting it wholeheartedly. No, it's a good thing. So do you have any other advice for, uh, future prospects or th- people that are, uh, getting onto hell attack that want to get onto hell attack? Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it kind of harkens back to one of my mentors in, in uh, fire is named Paul Gleason. A lot of people heard of him and, uh, look at him as a legend. And I had the, the fortunate, uh, ability to hang out with him both personally and professionally. Um, he always advocated for being a student of fire. And, um, I translate that into being a student of aviation, being a student of life, um, that's a critical skill set is, uh, maintaining that, that mindset of humility and, um, always being willing to learn. And I think that that's, that's crucial to being a helicopter crew member and then working up through the ranks into managing aircraft and, and eventually being a aerial supervision, et cetera. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to mentor people, whether it's a formal mentorship or, um, just loose conversation and advice. Um, I'm definitely available and willing to talk to anybody and everybody that wants to has a passion and wants to get into it. And that kind of, you know, the word passion hits me hard too, is, um, this job in general, wildland firefighting is requires that passion. You know, you're away from your family and your friends for long periods of time, long, hard days. And, and then you add aviation onto that. And that, you know, I, I spent, you know, close to 200 days on the road last year and, Um, you know, it's, it does require that passion. And, um, so I, I, I want to recognize those out there that do have that and just don't have the door open yet. And I'll I'll be happy to recommend the right training, the right people to contact in whatever region. And, and, you know, I don't know everybody, but I know quite a few people out there that, um, I can put people in touch and yeah, just reach out. Oh yeah, man. Speaking of which, where can we find you? Where can we get a hold of you? Hey, y'all can reach me at uh, 720-887-4846 or our uh, crew email, nocotype1 at gmail, N-O-C-O-T-Y-P-E-O-N-E at gmail.com. Uh, call me anytime. I may not answer because I'm probably taking a call to launch a heavy to a fire, but I'll definitely call you back. <laughs> awesome, man. What about socials? Uh, the, the crew has a uh, Instagram. We have a Facebook account. Noco Hell Attack at Noco Hell Attack for uh, IG okay. and just hit us up there. 
Perfect. So there you go. NoCo Hell Attack. And now uh, at the I'm end. I'm sorry. Of- did I say NoCo? I meant Northern Colorado Hell Attack. Northern, Northern Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Northern yep. Colorado Hell Attack. There we go. So get them up on the socials. And you guys just launched your uh, your Instagram just not too recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's brand new. So go give them some yep. love. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And Preston, Preston our, our, uh, our manager of that realm, he's he's one of the most dialed individuals I've ever worked with. And uh, he rejuvenated it. We I had a Facebook account that was going for a long time. And um, I just kind of faded away from it. But yeah, Preston's picked, picked up the torch and... He's doing really good. And, and that kind of goes to what, what he done, he did for our refresher this year, which I want to give him kudos on is, um, being it's all remote, he created like an amazing package for our seasonals to go through and awesome Google surveys so that they were forced to actively engage in communication. And so, yeah, shout out to Preston and yeah, he's a one of a kind. That's awesome. Good people on the crew. Yep. Right on. Well, at the end of the show, uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie, a hero, mentor, multiple, could be several people. Give it a run. Dang. Um, uh, I'd like to shout out to Steve. He, uh, I worked for him in Lake Tahoe back in the mid nineties and, uh, he was my assistant engine captain at the time. And, uh, he recently retired out as fire staff of the, the Lake Tahoe basin management unit. And, he was crucial to my career and kind of fostered the passion into aviation. And, um, I ran into him a couple years ago up on a fire and steamboat, which was, was really cool. And that's one of the neat things about wildfire is you, uh, wherever you travel and you, the longer you're in it, you're going to run into somebody, you know, and reconnect on a, on that, that friend level or, or, you know, longtime best friend kind of thing. And so shout out to him. Um, all my homies at Northern Carter hell attack, keep doing me proud. And, um, I'm always available for, uh, for communication. Whoever wants to give me a shout and, and talk about this kind of line of work. I'm, I'm always available. Hell yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I definitely appreciate it. Give us a little insight of, uh, what hell attacks all about. Brandon, it's been my pleasure and, uh, I appreciate the work you do and, uh, several of the podcasts I've listened to that you put on have been uh, top notch and you get in good guests and, no doubt I was nervous to come in here and, and try to live up to their standard. But yeah, thanks for your, your good questions and good interaction. So thank you. Anytime, brother. Hope everybody's doing well. Take care. You too, Ram. ladies and gentlemen there we go another episode of the anchor point podcast is in the books with mr scott nutt from northern colorado hell attack scott thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and uh, sharing your expertise and your insight and your knowledge and it's uh definitely important to hear this stuff and uh you're a wealth of knowledge and if you guys happen to be looking for any more knowledge feel free to hit him up he uh dropped his uh his information in the episode there and they also have a social media account too so if you guys want to hit him up and uh go check him out go follow him go over to at noco hell attack on the old ig on the old instagram there or you could just search for northern colorado hell attack and you can see what they're all about they got some pretty cool stuff on there uh just want to thank everybody for listening and uh yeah keep sharing the word if you guys got the time swing by itunes drop us a rating five stars would be appreciated shameless plug there but yeah keep tagging us on uh, your photos on the socials and uh, we'll keep uh reposting and sharing the word special shout out to our sponsors you got hot shot brewery kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause and you got mystery ranch 
built for the mission, the finest load-bearing equipment in the world. You got the Smoky Generation. Keep sharing the word. Keeps telling the story of wildland firefighters here in North America. And our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. Keep spreading awareness. Makes We got to raise some awareness about people not burying their business on public land. So once again, thank you guys. Thank you for supporting the show. And it couldn't have all happened without you guys. So catch you on the next one. Peace.